Hi y'all, I'm Bernie. I'm Nicole. And you are listening to Woke Woke Docs, a podcast about the lives of women of color in medicine. All views are those of the person speaking, not their employer. Today we'll be hearing from Dr. Kim Chang, who is a family physician at Asian Health Services in Oakland, California. She does incredible work advocating for underserved patients, immigrant communities, and people at risk or engaged in sexual exploitation. And this is a special episode because Dr. Chang does have one request for y'all. The Trump administration has continued their anti-immigration sentiment through a policy called public charge. This term is most relevant for purposes of determining whether a person can gain legal documentation. Public charge is defined as an individual who is likely to become primarily dependent on the government for assistance. The new rule would potentially withhold permanent residency from someone who has used social services like Medicaid, Medicare Part D, food stamps, and Section 8 housing vouchers. Even immigrants who received relatively small amounts of assistance for short periods might now be deemed public charges and be ineligible for green cards. As you'll hear in this episode, Dr. Chang and Asian Health Services are speaking out against public charge and need your help. In the description of this podcast, you'll find a website that Asian Health Services has created to add your comments challenging the Trump administration's anti-immigration public charge policy. They're asking for any and all comments by December 10th. So stay woke, y'all, and please send your comments in ASAP. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to start off very casually. Um, so if you could pick three words to describe yourself, what would you pick and why? All right, so three words to describe myself. I actually had three words, and I just changed one of them. <laughs> so as you know, uh, as you may or may not know, uh, these words, you know, people grow and develop and change over like time. That. So these words change. And I think nice. I've been asked this question before. So these words may not be the same if there's another podcast out there with me talking about <laughs> words to describe myself. These words might be different. Anyway, so uh, today the words would be determined, passionate, and strategic. So I think determined because, um, you know, if I set out a goal to accomplish something, I will I will keep on it until it happens, no matter how long it takes, years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that served me well in medicine mm-hmm. so that, we, you know, it takes so many years to become a trained physician and mm-hmm. to be able to practice right. and to give back and to see patients. Mm-hmm. And so I think that uh, quality has helped Mm-hmm. Uh, passionate, passionate because um, I've always been sort of moved by other people's emotional experiences, whether mm-hmm. it's fear, joy, pain, sorrow, whatever it is, um, happiness, um, a, a pride f- over their accomplishments. And I think those um, passionate, uh, when I see patients, um, and they, you know, we communicate about what their health goals are or whatever is going on in their life or whatever may have triggered some stressors. You know, I think that really helps to me to be able to care for them better. Mm-hmm. And then strategic, I think that helps in the policy work that I do, really trying to think about different angles on how to move an issue forward. Mm-hmm. And so those were the three words that I picked today. Mm-hmm. Dr. Chang is a force to be reckoned with, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. I think she's going to cut that out of the script. (laughs) Um, And when you first went into medicine, um, was that journey as multifaceted as you 
have it right now, kind of your week. You were telling us you were just um, in Denver talking on different panels. You do different work with human trafficking. You just got elected to the executive board for the National Association for Community Health Centers. Um, has this always been the vision since entering your journey into medicine, or has that evolved as you've grown as a medical student to resident to physician? Yeah, um, actually, I think this particular way that I am making change or doing work to give back or to participate in community, I think this part these particular w roles were not necessarily what I envisioned. However, I did envision being able to um, use medicine and public health as ways to, to create change, positive change in community for underserved populations um, and underserved marginalized communities. Um, I remember being in um, medical school. I went to University of Hawaii and uh, talking with my family medicine um, uh, preceptor, uh, his name is Dr. Randall Suzuka. He works on the North Shore of Hawaii. He still practices, and he, 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 he does a lot of like um, um, full-scope family, family medicine, meaning he delivers babies, he was doing hospital care, he was doing his clinical practice, he was very involved in the community. And I asked him, he, I said, you know, I'm really interested in family medicine, but do you think that you could practice family medicine the way that that you practice family medicine in a in a city or urban area because I was I have always wa been an urban sort of a uh, more uh, city person and he says yeah you could you could do that but it, it would be a different kind of practice and then I asked him well what about public health because I I think I want to do some public health too how does that work mm -hmm. together to impact communities and he says well. Um, the scope of public health is much broader. Medicine is more individual. Mm. And so if you think about, say, the person who advocated for and developed the seatbelt, right, how much impact that has had for public health. Mm. And so I remember, you know, I hadn't really thought about public health in, in those terms because I, I was very green in uh, medical school. I've gone straight through college. And so I thought about that. And I said, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. And I thought, well, I still want to be a doctor, but you, ha and it's very important to still be a doctor and to still still see individual patients, because that is what grounds you, mm -hmm. and that is where you find mm -hmm. out how people are being affected. Mm -hmm. yeah. This particular preceptor, Dr. Suzuka, he also told me that there's three um, professions that really understand what's going on in in the world, in community, mm -hmm. on the local ground level, mm -hmm. and those three professions are one doctors mm -hmm. why because people are telling us their their hopes their dreams their fears you know what's going on in their in their in their health and how that's impacted by their the context of them in their families and in their communities and in their society so doctors second teachers why because mm -hmm. the kids mm -hmm. come to yeah. school and they say whatever their parents are saying at home mm -hmm. those kinds of arguments or those discussions or whatever's going on or if there's violence uh, you know those things present in the classroom and the third one would be um, a clergy mm. because of the, the role that spirituality plays in many people's mm -hmm. lives and, and mm. the sort of, uh, I guess, confessionals um, or, or ways that people use spirituality to, tr to try to you know, cope with whatever's going on in life. Mm -hmm. And so those are very interesting concepts to me. And, and I, I thought it was really important to, to see patients in mm -hmm. order to do policy or public health. Mm -hmm. 
That's a really great perspective. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you said you were interested in public health. How did that interest uh, like happen? Was it before when you were in college that you were interested in <laughs> public health? or? Yeah, you know, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, so I majored in East Asian languages and cultures, uh, which I, and I, I, I specifically chose a liberal arts major. I went to Columbia in New York and I, I specifically chose a uh, liberal arts major because I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I was determined to become a physician and, and go to medical school, but I didn't want to just study science. Hmm. To me, that wasn't what medicine was about. Mm-hmm. Medicine was about humanity, mm-hmm. and I wanted to understand the context of history and art and literature and, and different things. And and Columbia College has a, has a big core, so you have to learn all of this kind of Western stuff. Western culture stuff, but mm-hmm. I, I, I picked East Asian languages and cultures because um, I'm I'm a I guess five six seven depending who knows really generation mm-hmm. Chinese American from Hawaii mm-hmm. with probably some other things mixed in probably some Hawaiian probably some Vietnamese uh, depending on which ancestor you trace back and and then but but my parents didn't speak Chinese my grandparents didn't really. Mm-hmm. My great-grandfather, who helped raise us, was born in 1900, mm-hmm. and he was kind of really hard hearing, so I'm not really sure if he spoke Chinese, but sometimes he came out with some words, or, but I didn't really know what that meant, and Hawaii is a majority-minority state, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. predominantly Asians, right? Mm-hmm. So I didn't, f- to me, I was just, you know, American or what have you. But I knew that there was something different, mm-hmm. right? Because we would, he- you'd hear in the news, and they, uh, Hawaii would never be on the, the the, the maps when mm-hmm. it, you know, national news talking about weather or whatever it is. Um, um, Hawaii has a has a big history with the with the, uh, with the four hundred forty second regiment fighting in World War Two. I mm-hmm. have a lot of uh, relatives. My gra- both my grandfathers fought in different wars, uh, um, and or were in the military, um, but I, I think one of them didn't fight in one of the wars. But anyway, uncles and things in Vietnam, and and you know, knowing that there was something different with um, race and ethnicity, but not really pinpointing what it was. Mm-hmm. And so I studied East Asian languages and cultures because I wanted to kind of understand more of that heritage mm-hmm. piece. Because mm-hmm. um, I would I would go to college and people would uh, say, well, why don't you speak Chinese? Mm. Or you know, you'd be you'd be kind of um, harassed on the streets with different you know racial epithets, and I'd be mm-hmm. like, God, I don't speak any Chinese, so I don't gotcha. know what you're what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But you know, just based on appearances mm-hmm. um, and things like that. Um, yeah, I guess we'll just stop there. I have a story about my dad, but. But we can talk about that later. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, what? So, in terms of like your journey into medicine, you're working here as a current clinician at the Frank King Medical Center. Asian Health Services. Asian yeah. Health Services. What made you work here in an FQHC and not in the hospital system, like UCSF or even like a county hospital like Highland? 
Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think divine divine intervention. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> uh, but really, I mean... No, okay, so <laughs> here's, 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 the, here's the deal. So I went to residency at UCSF, San Francisco General uh, Family Medicine, and that was, a, that was a great experience and a very good training program mm-hmm. for underserved um, populations and minority health and um, vulnerable, vulnerable patients. Really, really great training experience, highly recommend. Um, but I was tired. I was tired after I finished residency and I didn't want to work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> no, I, I needed a break. I went straight yeah. through. I went yeah. straight through. I think oh, maybe. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah, I went straight through from college to mm. medical school and mm-hmm. the, the residency, residency. I think is one of I think probably I was the youngest in the, in the residency class. Mm-hmm. And I was tired and I wanted to live a little and explore a little and really hadn't really traveled much um mm-hmm. so i took a few months off i took six months off and um much to the <laughs> disappointment of my my parents but uh i did that and then i was just looking for some locum tenens jobs so i did work at kaiser for a bit i worked at a couple of private practices and i worked at asian health mm-hmm. trying to figure out what kind of practice setting mm-hmm. would i would i be in um it became very clear straight away that, you know, my training at San Francisco General and the reason why I picked that residency program was because of underserved medicine. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, out of those different practice settings that I was in, you know, very quickly became clear that I wanted to be at Asian Health Services mm-hmm. and in a FQHC. Mm-hmm. So... So divine intervention. I had Sounds a friend. Like I had a friend. I had met a friend, and she said that she still works at Asian Health, and mm-hmm. um, she says, "Why don't you come and try it out?" Mm-hmm. And so. And what makes you stay? Oh my God! What makes me stay? So, <laughs> so, all right. So it's like a little light bulb. Just so people, <laughs> so people listening. I uh, before they started recording, I gave them a whole spiel about community health centers and and how community health centers were basically started out of the civil rights movement in the uh, in the 60s when people were asserting their rights to health care one of their civil rights being health care asian health services was no different was started in 1974 um, by student activists from berkeley and community activists in chinatown seeing that there was no um, access for for the people living in chinatown who didn't speak english who didn't have necessarily education who didn't have resources um, who didn't know the healthcare system, and so just that community organizing aspect was is is very embedded into Asian Health Services. In our mission statement, it has it's a dual mission. Right off the bat, the first four words is our mission is to serve and to advocate, mm-hmm. to serve and to advocate. Mm-hmm. So we do our clinical job, but we don't forget that our clinical job is predicated upon the the context of policies, Mm -hmm. society, um, um, you know, the way people view immigrants, the way, uh, what what kinds of resources are Mm -hmm. available to people who don't speak English, who are are poor, who are homeless, uh, who have mental illness. And so, you know, to serve and advocate, you can't just do the service piece. You have to be a part Mm -hmm. of the civic dialogue and 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 the change if things aren't working for the people that you're seeing Mm -hmm. so that's what keeps me here and asian health services continues to do that right Mm -hmm. so 
What do you have planned for the future? Uh, let's see. Tomorrow <laughs> I have <President>. clinic. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow I'm seeing patients. Um, okay. uh, what, what do you mean by that? Can you? What? I think it's going off the words that you chose uh-huh. and mm. just your passion for for all of these things that you're mentioning. Like, where do you see you, yourself going? Okay, so so you mean the three words that I chose? So what did I choose? <laughs> I chose determined, passionate, and strategic. Okay, mm-hmm. so what is my goal right now? Gosh, you know, um, I think my okay. So th- there's a couple of things. There's a couple of things. One is I do a lot of work around human trafficking and the healthcare intersection. So that's one of the policy arenas that I work in. And the second, the second uh, area is uh, working now with the National Association of Community Health Centers and really believing in community health centers across the country. Mm-hmm being able to respond to the individual problems and and different problems that their communities face. There are 11,000 communities being served by FQHC nationwide, and they're all basically underserved or medically underserved areas or medically underserved populations. And um, so what do I see for the, what do I want for the future? What do I see for the future? For the human trafficking policy work, I, I, I want there to be embedded protocols, practices, policies within the healthcare delivery system mm-hmm. to be able to prevent, uh, care for, intervene, and provide you know really good care for people who've been traumatized and exploited and have many different, have been, mi- have been affected by many different vectors of violence, mm-hmm. right? So that's, that's, that's on, and I want funding streams for that. Mm-hmm. I want resources. I really, mm-hmm. we really want to make a dent in this issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm so that people can just live, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. People shouldn't be exploited through labor or through sex, Mm -hmm. period, right? Um, But it happens because for whatever reason. And then the second area uh, in this role with the National Association and and being grounded in in Asian Health Services as a community health center is, you know, I, I really think FQHCs, are the premier primary healthcare delivery system in the United States, period. Not just for vulnerable populations, but period. Hmm. The way we see patients, the way our clinicians, the way the team works, the way we're embedded into community, the way we uh, work with with all of the different partners in a community that makes a community, whether it's business, um, political um, partners, um, other community-based organizations and, and, and just the people in general, education and things like that, I think is key to having healthy communities. Mm-hmm. And I think the value that community health centers bring is immeasurable. And I don't think a lot of people know what, what we do or what mm-hmm. we are or the kinds of change and, and um, successes that we have. Mm-hmm. And it's not just for vulnerable populations, mm-hmm. for the community as a whole. Mm-hmm. Right, so I love I love community health centers. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. Yeah. I was just gonna say, Dr. Chang, I feel like you really exude this enthusiasm that really energizes me because I'm like, wow, like you really love the work that you're doing, and like I can see it when you talk, and when you, yeah, I can just hear it really in the tone of your voice how you really take these issues to heart and really think about them at depth. Have you been able to find that type of enthusiasm? 
working with other doctors or even throughout medical school residency or has it been kind of tough to really maintain that passion for you uh, no i'm surrounded by people who f who feel this way um and maybe that's why i'm here at asian health maybe mm -hmm. that's why i chose ucsf hmm. san francisco general family hmm. medicine i was really lucky even even my mentor in um university of hawaii i mean he didn't do this kind of work but gosh mm -hmm. he's incredible like dr suzuka mm -hmm. um and so you know i think there's been a lot of people are passionate about stuff mm -hmm. right um you don't go into medicine if you're not passionate about it because it's a long haul right mm. so i'm sure you know maybe they're passionate in different ways right maybe it's not about you know community organizing or community building or policy work but maybe it's about bench research and you know that newest discovery whatever it is but people people are passionate i think i think pretty much everyone in but even in the face of like bureaucracy and um, I can imagine well, well that the passion comes out <laughs> when they're frustrated. Okay, <laughs> the people are passionate when they're frustrated, right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I mean, then why do they get frustrated, right? They get hmm. and, and and they get frustrated because they care, mm -hmm. right? They want they see that it can be different hmm. and better. I see. And why isn't it? Hmm. Right. And so yeah, I mean, yeah, bureaucracy. Yeah, it can it can be a struggle sometimes, but. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we it's created through people. We're all people, so yeah. we can change it. Yeah. Um, so what is, I guess, your most humbling experience that you've had, whether medical school or... So define humbling. Um, <laughs> like an experience... Like, what's your idea of that? Yeah, I, like an experience where you feel like that you your role as a doctor was very li much yeah it was like, like it's you're like this is this is why i'm here mm -hmm. type thing yeah or is that is that the constant feeling is that also uh, a feeling is that this why i'm here uh, no okay well you know um so when uh, so so i guess your definition of humbling is a little bit different than my <laughs> definition of humbling so mm -hmm. my definition mm -hmm. of humbling when you're asking me that question i was like oh it's when when did i have when did i fail oh. <laughs> <laughs> when oh, was i, I humbled oh, yeah I okay so but i do i do have i have that story and i don't know people may have heard it already because this is the impetus of why i got into um the the human trafficking policy work mm. more mm. i think and it was it was a patient that I uh, that I had seen. I don't know. If, have you guys heard this story? Have come no. okay. Um, so uh, a patient who was a young teen, um, um, who I had been seeing in the teen clinic for a couple years. She's probably fourteen, fifteen. You know, we didn't really know the full age because sometimes it changed. Um, or you know, anyway. So she had been. Um, uh, being been being commercially sexually exploited here in Oakland, and um, she came in one night, and we, you know, she'd come in on and off over the course of two years, and she came in one night, and she's really, really sick, uh, high fever, tachycardic, very fast heartbeat, um, rashes all over her body, mm -hmm. uh, really swollen joints, pain, 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 could barely walk, and had lost thirty pounds over the past three months. And so this this patient, um, I need you know needed to go to the hospital because teen clinic is a reproductive health clinic only. Plus she looked toxic. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I uh, told her, you know, we need to send you to the hospital. Can't shoot you here. I, I'm really concerned. I think, you know, you might, you know, if you don't go, you know, you could have very bad consequences and outcomes. And she says she refused. Mm. She absolutely refused to go to the hospital. Mm. And she said, I would rather die than go back to jail. Wow. Okay. So the point of that was on a previous hospitalization for a miscarriage, um, she was dish there was a bench warrant out for her arrest on charges of solicitation. And this is many mm -hmm. years ago. The laws have since changed, mm -hmm. so this should not be happening anymore. But there was a bench warrant for her arrest mm -hmm. because she didn't show up to court on charges of solicitation. And she's crazy. she's a kid, wow. right? She's mm -hmm. kid. So she that was a barrier for her mm -hmm. to get care mm -hmm. and to access. Um, and so you know, I had internalized some of her fear. And I understood where she was coming from. I don't, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, you know, we, we did some negotiation. She assured me that she would have this other person take her to the hospital. And so, and she didn't want an ambulance. She didn't have insurance. She was afraid of a bill. You know, many reasons. And so she didn't go that night. And when I called the ER that night, um, you know, I let her go with her assurances. <laughs> <laughs> that she would go and she didn't when i called the er that night they said oh no she hasn't shown up mm. so to me that that night you know our whole team we were really really i was really concerned that i just let her go home to die yeah. i really thought she was mm -hmm. going to die that night um but the beauty of the community health center is that we have a team and we're embedded in the community so mm -hmm. our bante sray mm -hmm. uh coordinator at the time her mm -hmm. name's elizabeth c mm -hmm. she knew all the people in the community and the mm -hmm. our youth program at the time manif manit tang mm -hmm. um and uh had, had known a lot you know they knew all the community members and mm -hmm. so they basically worked all their connections and mm -hmm. found out where she was wow. the next day wow. so they went elizabeth went to go find her talk to her you know uh got her trust brought her brought her to the to the hospital mm -hmm. Mm. and so she survived wow. you know after she was in the hospital for two months but anyway so the wow. point is mm -hmm. you know I had failed I had failed that night mm -hmm. I had failed that night I had failed that night and um, that was you know that is very humbling because for 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 it's very easy for you as a physician for me as a physician to say okay well I need to treat this I need to move on to the next patient mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but if and we we have very little time, right? Mm -hmm. But if we don't look past what they're really coming in for, mm -hmm. you know, these symptoms, health is really a symptom mm -hmm. of broader problems affecting these patients. Yeah, there could be a, just an infection, and you could treat that. But you know, family history, social history, um, all these contextual histories of who this patient is mm -hmm. is so important, and. Um, yeah 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 so that was the moment where i was like i need to do some i need to mm -hmm. you know think deeper mm -hmm. think harder yeah you know be more aware how do we prevent this for other clinicians i don't mm -hmm. want other clinicians to have to experience something like this mm -hmm. i don't want other patients definitely don't want other patients to have that kind of fear mm -hmm. and pain mm -hmm. and um experiences where they don't feel like they have anywhere else to go mm -hmm. yeah yeah so it really reminds me also of what you were saying in terms of the mission of Asian health services being serve and advocate. Mm -hmm. And 
it also makes me think how as medical students we're not taught that in residency I feel like a lot of residencies have that kind of as a side um, portion of their training and the advocacy portions and so I'm wondering what what are your thoughts on having to realize that as a practicing physician like do you think that medical students residents should be educated in these types of things or and um, how do you think so mm-hmm. yeah I think it, it I think civic engagement definitely mm-hmm. I mean if we want to go into um, you know different issues and things you know people have different views on a lot of different things mm-hmm. but there was just you know there was just a um, uh, New York Times op-ed uh, by Dr. Offrey Danielle Offrey anyway I read it and it, she talks about it's our responsibility as physicians to encourage our patients to vote she wrote this big op-ed it was like last week right and 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 like you know civic engagement is important Mm -hmm. dialogue and understanding community is important making sure that if we're seeing patients who are not in the mainstream that their voices are heard as well because we get a lot of voices that in the mainstream that you know we hear it because they're majority Mm -hmm. but patients who don't speak english who don't have education who don't who don't have political power or financial power their voices don't get heard but they're an equal partner in our community they should be equal mm-hmm. partners in our community so you know it's important i think it's important what skills do you wish you would have gotten from either residency or medical school that you had to learn that are making your job easier now but kind of rough at the beginning hmm uh, as far as well, advocacy. Oh, uh, yeah. so sk- uh, uh, advocacy skills. Um, you know, so uh, let's see. So in residency, we had to do a, uh, what is it, CBP, CBPR? Mm-hmm. Commu- wh- or COPD, COP, what is what's the C- CBPR. C- yeah. no, 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 not CBPR. No. COPC, Community Oriented Primary Care Project. Hmm. COPC. They may have changed the acronyms, <laughs> but anyway, there's always they're always innovating on different yeah. kinds of ways yeah. to do curriculum, and we had to do a, um, you know, a, a, as a as a residency class, a uh, project in our community, and I think we focused on medical el- eligibility, but you know, one of my co-residents um, had made a comment like, "Well, why is it only this type? Why is it only this type of community?" oriented primary care projects you know research Mm -hmm. or you know you know there's other types like community organizing Mm -hmm. and community activism and things like that and that stuck with me um so so you know we didn't really get a whole lot of that um i get a lot of that here at asian health services just because we have to engage our community Mm -hmm. and make sure that they understand what's going on how these policies are going to affect them Mm -hmm. um so community organizing skills, mm-hmm. I think. Um, yeah. Dr. Shang, how does your identity as a woman of color transform the field of medicine? How do you feel that your embodiment really changes how medicine is played out in communities? And also, how do you think that the inclusion of more women of color physicians and health professionals can really change this field? There was a, there was a statistic by the Green Landing Institute that only around about 12% of physicians are women of color. And so, what are your thoughts on that? Is it really? Is that true? 12% nationwide 
or mm-hmm. worldwide? Nationwide. <laughs> Nationwide. <probably>. <laughs> okay. Uh, really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I feel very blessed here at Asian Health <laughs> Services because, you know, with the, that it's more than 12%, a lot more. Um, so, so what was the question? Um, how is my identity as a woman of color? How does that transform what medicine can be and should be for communities? Well, you know, I, hmm. I think it's important to have representation because the experiences that we have in our lives give us a different perspective, right? I mean, that's that's clear. Um, the experiences as someone from Hawaii, the experiences as someone who's Asian, the experiences as being as a woman, um, those are all different, right? So it's important to have these different viewpoints, right? Because mm-hmm. not everybody is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I alluded to earlier growing up in Hawaii, and that's a majority minority state, um, predominantly Asians. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really have this conception of being Asian. I think even growing up, we, we used to call ourselves Oriental, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, well, I'm kind of old. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, yes. Um, I I remember distinctly remember that, and I distinctly remember it changed. My language shifted maybe in high school, mm. but I didn't really know. I was like, well, why does it matter? I mean, and then and then I went to Columbia and East Asian Studies, and uh, to you know had to study Edward Said and and all of these like thought uh, liberal philosophy thought um, scholars and. And then I, you know, kind of, kind of then understood, you know, the objectification, um, the othering, um, the marginalization, and how those perspectives translate into resources. Mm-hmm. So you know, I don't really care about the words, but mm-hmm. words have power because down the line it translates into who gets what, mm-hmm. and who is important and who's a priority mm-hmm. in society. When we're all, when we all should be equal, mm-hmm. equal members mm-hmm. of society, just from the sheer intrinsic value of being a human being mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, and so, so I guess that's, that's, I mean, I guess I didn't really answer your question, but that's how I would view it. I didn't really have this consciousness growing up. Um, and so I still am kind of understanding more. I'm still learning. Um, I meet a lot of people who have done a lot of thinking around gender issues, gender-based issues or race-based issues, and, and I haven't necessarily spent a lot of time delving into that. So, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I don't, you know, I think I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. But I guess also from, you know, our conversations in terms of what the advocacy work that you do here at Asian Health Services, when you talk about marginalization, translating into resources and defining who's important what's important um things especially for asian american communities and so there's a lot of talk right now about the lack of disaggregated data um especially now with um the political atmosphere things like public charge which you and asian health services has been a lead on um we can really see the effects of actually bringing those issues to light because people like you are here um and could you, ex- I guess, could you expand more about the need for the da- for that disaggregated data as well as the um, urgency of public charge now, especially for our listeners who may not be familiar with what that is? 
okay, so disaggregation of data, that just means that Asians and, uh, and Pacific Islanders are not a homogenous group, right? Same thing with lat lat Latinos, mm -hmm. right? Uh, different languages, different cultures, different countries of origin, different immigration experiences. Um, and so this is important because it's not not just a monolithic group. Um, different challenges for different communities. I'll give you an example here at Asian Health. Um, when we opened the Frank Kang Medical Center, mm -hmm. uh, it was a brand new clinical site in opened in 2010. And because it was brand new, we're expanding capacity. We had the ability to see new patients, right? The, the sites in Chinatown were pretty full. You know, you had uh, you had hired all your doctors. They all had full panels of patients. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're going to get a new patient in, it's kind of like, how are you going to do that? Well, people have to transfer out or, you know, uh, other reasons. People people die and, and then, you know, you get openings and your, your panel of patients. How many patients one doctor can physically see and take care of mm -hmm. in in the course of you know a year right mm -hmm. and so brand new capacity and when we opened this site um there were there were two new immigrant refugee groups that were at the time being um uh allowed to enter into the united states and that was the burmese and the karen mm -hmm. and kareni actually and so we had this new capacity and we made a decision hey let's 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 open up and expand our language capacity meaning we have personnel on site who can interpret for these communities mm -hmm. um and let's let's do it right so mm -hmm. increasing our our language capacity by two more languages and that's tough to do because you have to think about it you need coverage every single day for multiple providers who might be seeing Burmese mm -hmm. patients or Karen speaking right. patients at the same time, mm -hmm. checking in at the front desk, seeing the triage nurse, and then seeing you know the physician, and then checking out, and, and all this stuff. So that's operational flow management issues. So we said we have new capacity. We haven't hired all our staffing. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. So we had to hire staff for Burmese, Karen, Korean, Tagalog, um, Cantonese, Mandarin, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Mongolian. Huge task, mm -hmm. tall order, but we did it. We were successful, and we still see those all those language groups now. Mm -hmm. um, and that's important. Um, um, when we had other sites open up, you know, the complexity is very difficult to deal with, and it's also very expensive. Mm -hmm. And so there are other smaller groups that had asked, mm -hmm. "Can you expand and give us that same level of service?" And you know, it wasn't fiscally financially possible mm -hmm. and so you know um i think this disaggregation of data and this sort of having representation and being able to see uh more smaller community groups or more marginalized populations is important mm -hmm. because if you don't then you just you're just gonna have you're just gonna have people who are left out mm -hmm. and they're not gonna get care and you're gonna have these disparities right yeah. And the disparities manifest. Uh, you, you talked about um, uh, studying disparities in your undergrad or your Fulbright or something. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, you know, some of the worst um, health health disparities for Southeast Asians, right? Mm -hmm. 
But if you lump everybody in into Asian Pacific Islanders, then you're going to get skewed data. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to know that Southeast Asians have worse screenings or, yeah. Anyway, Thank you. I think everybody knows that. <laughs> you think so? I mean, you don't like think so? I mean, like you said, Maybe. Harvard, affirmative action. I actually wrote op-eds in this about this issue when I was an undergrad and it first came up 2015. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's when we ha- see Asians as a monolithic group, we're seen as a wedge with this whole model minority myth. Mm-hmm. Data is skewed, therefore people get overlooked and that means our communities suffer. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, what you're saying is really important. And now, public charge, hmm. huge issue. Mm-hmm. You've been tweeting about it, huge voice about it. Can you explain more? So the public charge has always existed. And so the public charge issue is this issue that um, if you are trying to come to the United States uh, and you might in the future be a drain on the resources or a public charge, mm-hmm. meaning you're going to be on welfare or you're going to need a lot of social uh, safety net supports that they're going to not, it's going to count against you in your application to become a, a, a permanent resident, legal permanent resident, mm-hmm. and then maybe down the line a citizen. Now, this, this rule already exists. It exists specifically for cash welfare benefits mm-hmm. and long-term care, mm-hmm. facility institutionalized care. That's that's what public charge is right now. Those two things count against you if you're here in the United States as a legal immigrant and want to apply for permanent residency or a green card. Okay? This r- public charge rules change seeks to expand the definition to Section 8 housing, housing assistance, um, Medi- Medicaid, mm-hmm. possibly considering children's health insurance program, mm-hmm. CHIP, um, food stamps. All these things retroactively, if you've ever used it in your past because you fell on hard times or your family fell on hard times, if you've ever used it in the past, immigration officials can say, well, I'm going to count you, you know, use this as an as, as idea that you're in the future going to be a public charge and deny y- your application. Mm-hmm. There's other things in there, including health status and assets or wealth Mm -hmm. so basically what they're saying is the priority for someone applying to become a legal permanent resident or green card holder is wealthy healthy you know um, not not um, having uh, ever fallen on hard times in the past Mm -hmm. and this is wrong these are these are benefits that legal immigrants are entitled to by the law they're entitled to it. It's they're not doing anything illegal mm-hmm. <laughs> by using them. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, using it as a way to punish people for being poor, mm-hmm. for 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 being maybe having some health conditions, for um, you know maybe having some something falling on some hard times in their life, or not ev- having assets from the country the country of origin and so this is this is really a terrible rule it is also going to punish a lot of mixed status families so you know people are human beings and 
papers don't determine whether you're in a family. Documentation doesn't determine whether you're in a family, right? So there are um, American children. They're American citizens, but their parents may not be. And so these parents are pulling their kids out of healthcare, right? So this rule is going to have unintended consequences, or maybe they're intended. I don't know. That's you know of of having having punishing people is punishing people, and this is this is a terrible rule. Um, it's happened before. It's happened before in in 1996 with Clinton's um, welfare reform. They actually had expanded this public charge. Mm. Asian Health Services had a patient who uh, was a, a legal immigrant, and she gave birth to twins. She gave birth to twins at the county hospital. She went to China with the twins to visit family or what have you. Came back at immigration at San Francisco General, uh, San Francisco Hospital. Uh, <laughs> sorry, San Francisco Airport. Mm -hmm. um, they stopped her and said, where did you give birth to these twins? She said, at the county hospital. Who paid for it? Well, Medicaid. Mm -hmm. She's on Medicaid, mm -hmm. Medi-Cal. Go into a secret back room, figure it out. They found out that you know, they came back and say, well, you owe us $40,000 for the birth of your twins. Wow. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to let you in. This was during the Clinton administration. Yes. So, you know, these kinds of policies, you know, it, 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 you know that's during welfare reform. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, so she was. She has not been back to the United States. Her twins. They had a lot of, you know, community organizing to try to get, you know, support. And they are here, mm -hmm. um, but never, you know, separated from the mom. Mm -hmm. So, so these things happen, mm -hmm. and it's very. It's going to impact a lot of people. Mm. So that's public charge. So please write comments. Okay. <laughs> um, there should be a link at the bottom of this SoundCloud. <laughs> yes. yes, there will be. Public comments opposing this rule, and um, you have to submit them to the Federal Register before December 10th. December 10th. December 10th. We got you. Our last question that we usually like to ask um, our podcast interviewees um, is advice. Advice for our listeners who are starting the medical journey, who... Maybe they come from a community organizing background and they're like, I don't know if this really fits into medicine. And I think you really um, have embodied that that is possible and that that is actually kind of a lifestyle and that can be made as to how you really play that out. Um, but what advice do you really have for a lot of med students who really want to build this multifaceted career to serve and advocate? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just do it. <laughs> you just do it. I mean, if you want to do something, mm -hmm. you'll make it happen, mm -hmm. right? You'll make it happen. So I guess my advice would be, um, <clears throat> um, when you are when you become a physician, you have a lot of power, and privilege, hmm. and responsibility, and so you know physicians get paid very handsomely. You you, you get rewarded very handsomely, right? Um, how much do you really need? I mean, some people have lots of loans, so <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, so you need to pay those off. But um, but you have a responsibility, and there are people who do not have that power, do not have that privilege, do not have that earning potential, and do not have that financial stability. And so you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to um, be able to give back, and not give back just in your job, 
as a, a <laughs> doctor, which is very important. You mm -hmm. should have your professional uh, standards and credibility and be a good good doctor. Mm -hmm. But you have to give back. Um, and, you know, it can be very easy to, to get comfortable. Um, and it can be very easy to get frustrated with our own frustrations with the healthcare delivery system mm -hmm. and the structure of medicine and the bureaucracy as you alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. But those are small problems compared to what what some of our patients are going through. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, keep perspective. Mm -hmm. um, the other advice I would say is you got to you got to do the work. You got to study hard and and you know, learn all the material that you have to learn. But for me as as a woman of color, um, I always thought, you know, you do good in school, you, you get your grades, you, you know, you learn your material, that's enough. It's not, it's not mm -hmm. enough. And so my advice would also be to knock on doors, mm. to reach out to folks. Mm -hmm. They may not answer you back, mm -hmm. but they might. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, have that sort of entrepreneurial spirit and that go-getter spirit if you don't ask you're never going to get something. Mm -hmm. But if you ask, you might. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's a lesson from my mom. If you don't ask, you don't get. Oh my so God, always that's ask. my mom too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, <laughs> if you don't <laughs> ask, you don't get. <laughs> so ask. Yes. You know, um, you know w my other mentor um, from uh, the, co uh, the Harvard uh, Commonwealth Fund Minority Health Policy Fellowship, Dr. Joan Reed, who's uh, the Dean of Diversity and Inclusion mm -hmm. at Harvard Medical School, um, you know, sh she makes a good point, you know, uh, people of color and women do not get picked for, for leadership positions necessarily, right? When you, when you hear a lot of leaders in, I I men and, um, and uh, um, <laughs> uh, when you hear a lot of, uh, uh, people who have privilege, men, um, Caucasian men in particular, um, you know, some of their stories are, well, I was in the right place at the right time and this mm -hmm. person asked me to mm -hmm. do this and I mm -hmm. I was so thrilled I, I got this opportunity and this job. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen to people of color and women. Mm -hmm. So we have, to, we have to know that mm -hmm. those stories may not apply to us. Mm -hmm. And so we have to figure another way out. We have to be strategic mm -hmm. and we have to go get it, mm -hmm. right? We have to go get it. Um, and use all of our community organizing skills and all of our uh, networks and support each other, mm -hmm. right? Support people who don't have those opportunities mm -hmm. and um, give back. So that's it, I guess. I'm going to go get it. Yeah. That's, go get <laughs> it. <laughs> that's really my feeling. Go get now. it. I'm going to yeah. go get it. Go get it <laughs> yes. and give back. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you again, Dr. Yeah. Chang, for being on this podcast. And Listeners, remember to submit your comments for public charge. We have a link in the description. Um, and yeah, thank you again, Dr. Chang. We really appreciate it. It's been You're really welcome. fun.